week beginning the 22nd of January. This is the History of Pop Culture. Hello, I'm Chesney Fawkes-Porter. Let's get started. We're shining a desk lamp on the Magic Kingdom as we look back at when Disney purchased Pixar in 2006. And it's not quite the return of the Mac. In fact, this was its very first outing, the launch of the Apple Macintosh in 1984. I'm currently hiding half my face with my hand, but you can't see that. We look back at the debut of the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway in 1988. Mind your head on that chandelier. And we play a little guessing game to see if you can figure out some of the inductees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But first up... For our first story today, let's look back to January 24th, 2006. The day when two titans of cinema finally got together after years of will-they-won't-they they flirting. This is the day that Disney buys Pixar. That's one of the best pieces of film music ever, in my opinion, Le Festine from Ratatouille, which was the first Pixar film released after Disney purchased Pixar. But, of course, there were plenty of Disney Pixar films before that, so to better understand what this purchase really means, it's a good idea to look at this step by step. So let's have a little look at the three eras of Pixar. Era 1, the golden era. Pixar begins its life all the way back in 1974 as the Computer Graphics Lab, or CGL, in New York. But after hemorrhaging a frankly ridiculous amount of money, two movie magicians in Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas had a meeting with the team and CGL began its new life as a division of Lucasfilms before it span off on its own once again with the help of none other than the Apple co-founder, Steve Jobs. He became the team's majority shareholder in 1986, and it was here that the name Pixar was coined when the name of one of their computer systems, Picture Maker, was shortened. You know, when you look back at it, when you think about it, it's absolutely crazy to think that George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, and Steve Jobs were at all one point attached to Pixar before those lazy boys had even bothered to make a film. Now, it was in this independent period that the first uh, meet-cute happened between Disney and Pixar as they both brushed hands, reaching for the same loaf of bread in Lidl and smiling at each other. Pixar had been working on a computer to render animated images, which Disney eventually purchased the rights to use. And the first film, where both Disney and the Pixar computer were involved, was The Rescuers Down Under in 1990, which, I know, isn't the biggest and brightest of starts for the two companies, but there's nowhere to go but up when you start Down Under, I suppose. But um, tsh! And, uh, well, up and up they went, to be honest, with... Pixar then signing a historic $26 million deal with Disney to produce three computer-animated feature films. That feature film bit is quite important. We'll come back to that. They began with a little-known film called Toy Story in 1995. Bit of a a cult classic. You might not know it, but Toy Story grossed over $300 million at the box office, which was a huge 
deal for an animated film at the time. And as a result, when Pixar became publicly listed on the stock market later that year, it was the biggest launch of the year. Things were looking pretty tasty over at Pixar Palace. Now, following the next release uh, in the Pixar lifespan, which was A Bug's Life, cracks began to appear between Disney and Pixar, and that once seemingly star-crossed love got a bit rocky. It's like when you watch a sitcom, where the characters that you wanted to get together all season finally do in the finale, and then when the next season airs, they had no other ideas, so they've broken the characters up again for some unknown reason, and the cycle begins again. Pixar and Disney began work on Toy Story 2, which at the time was due to be a direct-to-video sequel, so didn't count towards that three-picture feature film deal. But when the film was upgraded to a full cinema release during its cycle, Disney refused to count it towards part of their three-picture deal, much to Pixar's annoyance. They began to feel like Disney owned all the cards in this deal, as even though profit for the films was split 50-50, Disney owned all of the merch, characters, and sequel rights. Plus, they earned an extra 10-15% in distribution fees. Pixar wanted more control, and so for genuinely years and years, the two companies were at loggerheads. Whilst still producing films together, like Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredible, and Cars, Pixar was attempting to agree a deal which gave them full control of all sequels and ownership of their movies. But Disney, being Disney, were not budging. Just for context, these issues first started in the late 90s, and it took until 2004 for the man still in charge of Pixar, Steve Jobs, to say, Enough is enough, Mickey Mouse. I'm taking my toys and going to somebody else's clubhouse. So... Steve announced in 2004 that Pixar was actively looking for new partners and was looking to detach itself from Disney. It then promptly entered into negotiations with absolutely no one and came back to Disney in 2006, ready to be swallowed whole. Era number two, the acquisition transition. January 24th. 2006, the day we are talking about, Disney releases a press statement that they are fully acquiring Pixar in a deal valued at $7.4 billion. This marked the end of Steve Jobs' time with Pixar as he went to do some pretty amazing things in the sadly short time he had left. I'll be talking a lot more about Steve later in the show. So, this deal brought Pixar officially into the Disney fold. The series finale had aired and the two fan favourites finally got married. But there were conditions in place to keep the two specifically separate. Pixar wanted to keep its identity, so all the films released would be branded Disney Pixar. They'd get to stay in their original Pixar HQ and the Disney animation team would be a separate entity than the Disney Pixar animation team. This acquisition also meant that Disney got to release three movies that Pixar hadn't really intended for Disney to have. During this rocky period before the acquisition, Pixar were working on three movies that were a little bit different to their previous works, and they were making them with the idea of selling them to different distributors. Ratatouille, Up, and Wally. And when you think about those three films... Compared to every other Pixar film, they are the least Disney-fied films. 
All the Pixar movies up till that point had played to a really mainstream market. Here's some toys come to life. Here's a fish looking for his dad. Now all of a sudden, here's a rat chef trying to impress a food critic in France. Here's an old man who fills his house with balloons to go on an adventure. And here's two robots that can't speak English in a space opera love story. These are films that probably wouldn't have got past the pitching stage in a Disney boardroom, but at Pixar, they were bold and ambitious enough to give it a go, which is a trait I think Disney-Pixar really lacks in its current era. Era 3, sequels and franchises. So, so far, we've covered every Pixar film up to the release of Up in 2009. That's 10 films, and only one of those 10 was a sequel. Since that acquisition was properly cemented, Disney Pixar have released 17 feature films, and eight of those are sequels, with Inside Out 2 also coming out this year, bringing the total to nine sequels. Disney seemingly loves to milk a cash cow, and it clearly works. In the list of animated films that have made the most money at the box office, Pixar has four in the top ten. Disney has a lot more, but Pixar specifically has four. And all four of them, Incredibles 2, Toy Story 3 and 4, and Finding Dory, are all sequels released in this current era. For me, the originality and magic seems to really lack in this current era of Disney-Pixar, which is why when truly original and amazing things do come along, like Inside Out, which in my opinion is Pixar's finest work since 2009, they really stand out. I want to see more of this daredevil originality that made the original Pixar movies so incredible. Which is why, for me, in a way, I wish this merger had never happened and Pixar was left back on its own to create incredible new stuff. It'd be really interesting to see a world in which Pixar was still an independent company. What things could they be making? What Disney does shapes the world, and especially the world of pop culture. So I'm ranking the acquisition of Pixar by Disney at a 9 out of 10 on my popometer. Now... Before our next story, let's play a guessing game. The inaugural Rock and Roll Hall of Fame took place on the 23rd of January 1986. So, I'm going to give you the names of some singles from some famous Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members. Just tell me who the artist is. So, we'll start off easy and we'll get a little bit harder as we go. So, this man was inducted into the original class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986. And his most streamed single is I Got You, brackets, I Feel Good. Who is it? It's James Brown. Another hopefully fairly easy one here. This woman was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1987 and has singles like Respect and Son of a Preacher Man. Who is it? It's Aretha Franklin. Let's fast forward to 1990. And this band are inducted, with one of their famous singles being My Generation. It's The Who. Getting a little bit harder now, I suppose. In 1994, this man is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. One of his favourite singles is a song called Maggie May. It's Rod Stewart. And let's have a look at a couple of the more recent inductees. In 2015... 
this band was inducted by Miley Cyrus, and they've got a single called Bad Reputation. It's Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And finally, in 2022, this man was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, having songs like Without Me and Mockingbird. Yeah, you're not tripping. It's Eminem in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, let's have a look at our second story of today. Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. That's the advert that Apple showed at the 1983 Super Bowl to tell the world about their newest innovation. They claim in that advert to be fighting back against Big Brother in a reference to George Orwell's 1984. But, much like Anakin Skywalker, many say these days they've become the very thing they wanted to destroy. Let's look back to the 24th of January 1984, the launch of the Apple Macintosh. So, prior to the launch of the Macintosh, or I'll keep it as Mac for short, Apple and IBM were the big fish in the relatively small pond of personal computers. IBM were the Goliath and Apple were seemingly the David in this analogy. Many people were convinced that IBM was about to take over the entire personal computer landscape and basically take over the world. But then Apple said, nah, actually, have a look at this advert. Boom. Super Bowl advert, Macintosh debuts, profit, profit, profit. The idea of the Macintosh was actually born way back in the 70s by Apple employee Jeff Raskin, who worked on the project until Steve Jobs and him had a bit of a falling out. 1984 rolls around and we see the birth of the Macintosh 128K, a nifty bit of kit that was one of the first to introduce the much-beloved feature, the computer mouse. Now, the thing that really set this original Mac aside from the competition was its software. The done thing at the time when making a computer was that it could run other people's software and operating systems, whereas the Mac was pre-built with its own software and operating systems, which meant everything had to be tailor-made specifically for it. And the marketing for this first Macintosh went crazy, with Apple uh, coming up with the idea of the test drive a Macintosh scheme, where any old Joe off the street could go into a dealer, take a Macintosh home for the day, and then return it to the dealer the next day and buy it if they liked it. Now, dealers hated this because it just led to people bringing back damaged and unsaleable goods, but it got people talking about the Mac, and that's what Apple likes best. Sales were strong for the Macintosh at first, but slowed quickly due to the low power and space the Macintosh had compared to other units, and so several new models followed very quickly, and the Macintosh began to take the industry by storm. We got relatively close to what most people would consider a MacBook in 1989, with the release of the truly hideous-looking Macintosh Portable, which was meant to be a laptop-style computer with the slight problem that it weighed the same as a 10-ton truck. So in 1991, saw the replacement product, the PowerBook Pro, 
which was a proper laptop, complete with a little scroll wheel that us ADHD lot could fiddle and fidget with. But Apple got cocky. And by 1995, the quality of the Mac products being put on the market was waning, and so was their market share. People were abandoning the Mac in their droves, and the market share dropped to around 3%. Not great. So, re-entering the fold with vigour and vim came Steve Jobs and Johnny Ives. Not long after the initial launch of the Macintosh, Steve Jobs was ousted from the company by the board of directors. And now, when Apple was facing a crisis in 1995, he was brought back as CEO. And his target was the Macintosh. He began by introducing the Apple iMac G3, the famous big, square, chunky, colourful, all-in-one computer designed by Johnny Ives that many people still think of when they think about the Mac. This was followed up in the next year by the Mac G4 and the biggest step the Mac had taken to date, the iBook. A Mac in your lap that was the first real iteration of the most popular version of the Macintosh today, the MacBook. We move into 1999 and we see Apple trying to market the Mac as the computer for a digital lifestyle, introducing much-loved and long-standing features like iMovie and iTunes, and it felt like Macs were just a lot of fun at this time in history. Now, let's fast forward to 2007. The iPhone is released and the attention of the world goes to it. But 2008 rolls around and Apple essentially changes the laptop market forever with the release of the MacBook Air. The laptop that still fills the seats of every uni lecture theatre to this day. And I think we know what happens from there. The Mac goes on to be known as the creative computer, compared to Windows being the office computer. The Mac, MacBook and Mac Mini are now all stalwarts in many homes, and the modern-day creative industry of art, sound design, movie making and more, basically runs on the Mac OS operating system. I mean, I wrote this episode on a Mac, and I'm recording this episode on a Mac. The introduction of the Mac was a confused and auspicious start, but the Mac today is an indispensable and fully integrated part of our daily life. So, sure, we might not like that Apple seems to know everything about us, but I bet I can take a guess what company makes the device you're listening to this episode on? The introduction of the Apple Mac, for me, gets a 10 out of 10 on my popometer. What a big week we're having so far. Let's have a look at some shorter stories from the week in pop culture. On the 23rd of January 1983, the A-Team premieres on TV. And a year later, on the 23rd of January 1984, Hulk Hogan wins his first pro wrestling world title. On the 24th of Jan 2011, Adele releases the album 21. And on the 25th of January 1949, the very first Emmy Awards. On the 25th of January 1964, the Beatles' first US number one with I Wanna Hold Your Hand. And on the 25th of January 1980, Sir Paul McCartney of Beatles fame is released from a Japanese jail after being arrested for marijuana possession. On the 25th of January 1961, 101 Dalmatians is released. And on the 25th of January 2005, 2K Games is founded, known for their sports franchises like NBA 2K, the Bioshock Games, and WWE 2K. 
on the 26th of January 1926, John Logie Baird has the first public demonstration of television. And on the 26th of January 1980, 175,000 people show up to watch Frank Sinatra perform in Rio de Janeiro. On the 27th of January 1981, Michael Jackson burns his hair doing a Pepsi advert. On the 27th of January 2004, Usher releases Yeah, the Billboard Song of the Year. And on the 28th of January 1985, the charity single We Are The World is released. Now it's a pretty good time to mention that if you're enjoying the show and want a daily dose of pop culture history, you can head to our TikTok page at History of Pop Culture. On there, you'll find a daily minute-long hit of the biggest stories from today in the history of pop culture. Now, back to the show. Let's play a little game. Which musical won over 20 major awards, is the longest-running Broadway show ever, and the second-longest-running West End show ever? It debuted on Broadway on January the 26th, 1988. Oh, he's here. The Phantom of the Opera. In a sleep he sang to me, in dreams he came. That voice which calls to me and speaks... Yes. For our third story today, we are looking at one of the most famous and beloved musicals of all time, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera. And though the Broadway production wasn't the original, it is the most successful. Though it closed last year, the show is the longest running on Broadway ever, running for nearly 14,000 performances between 1988 and 2023. But how did the story of this show begin? Let's take a little look. Well, starting back in 1984, and at that point, Andrew Lloyd Webber is already a megastar. He's written Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Evita, Cats, and Starlight Express. But he was hung up on the idea of writing a big, dramatic, romantic musical. So he had a chat with his longtime partner and producer extraordinaire, Cameron McIntosh, and pitched the idea of turning the Gaston LaRue novel, The Phantom of the Opera, into a musical. I don't know, I can't see it taken off myself. <laughs> so, the two sat down and watched the 1925 and 1943 movie adaptations of Phantom, but they just couldn't see a way of turning it into a musical, until, after leaving the project dormant for quite a while, Andrew said, ah, stuff it, let's give it a go. And the path to Phantom was born. Now, the way Andrew Lloyd Webber works is he writes the tunes and somebody else writes the lyrics. And for this show, he went through a few writers. His first thought was Jim Steinman, famous for his work with Meatloaf, due to his dark and dramatic lyrics. But he had to turn it down as he had prior commitments working with Bonnie Tyler. I mean, you know, there's worse problems to have. Next, Andrew recruited Alan J. Lerner, famous for his work with My Fair Lady and An American in Paris. But the curse of the Phantom struck, and Alan became incredibly ill and had to withdraw from the project. Some of his contributions, namely one of the most famous songs from the show, Masquerade, are included in the show still, though he is not credited. 
Next came the turn of Richard Stilgo, who had worked with Lloyd Webber on Starlight Express. And credit to him, he actually managed to stick around for the whole show and wrote the original lyrics to Phantom of the Opera. Before, a young writer called Charles Hart was brought in to basically rewrite the show's lyrics again. So, four lyricists later, the Phantom was ready. In 1985, Andrew Lloyd Webber decided it was time for a preview performance of the show, which for theatre shows is basically a tryout to see if it's going to work on a bigger stage. This is usually done in a smaller theatre or perhaps in a big theatre away from Broadway or the West End. This particular preview was put on at a place called Sidmonton Court, otherwise known as Andrew Lloyd Webber's actual house. That is one hell of a flex, if I've ever heard of one. Now, this preview starred Colm Wilkinson as the Phantom. He played the original Jean Valjean in Les Miserables, and Sarah Brightman, Lloyd Webber's then-wife, as Christine. A year later, the Phantom makes its West End debut. The original 1986 West End production stars Michael Crawford as the Phantom, Sarah Brightman as Christine, and Steve Barton as Raoul. The original unchanged West End production would go on from 1986 to 2020 before closing due to the pandemic and reopening as the scaled down and changed touring production, much to many people's dismay. But now let's talk Broadway, as in 1988, Michael Crawford, Sarah Brightman and Steve Barton reprised their roles at the Majestic Theatre on Broadway as the Phantom of the Opera opens. Becoming an absolute mega-hit, it ran from 1988 to 2023, performing just under 14,000 shows. To put that into perspective, Chicago is the second longest-running Broadway show, still running now, but it would need to run for eight shows a week for another eight years, by my calculations, to be able to catch up with Phantom. Phantom of the Opera became the first Broadway show to hit 10,000 performances in 2012 and in 2018 celebrated its 30th anniversary on Broadway. Now, much like its West End counterpart, it closed its doors in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. But unlike London, the original production returned in 2021, but struggled to get audiences through the door. And so it was announced that Phantom of the Opera on Broadway would be closing in February of 2023. Ticket sales then soared after the announcement and the show closing was actually pushed back to April of that year. But it wasn't enough to save the Phantom and it was finally laid to rest. Or was it? Immediately after the closure of the Broadway production, old Uncle Andrew came onto The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and hinted at the Broadway return of the Phantom very soon, which most people assume means the same stripped-back touring production the West End received is coming to Broadway. I mean, hey, it's better than nothing. Phantom of the Opera is one of, if not the most influential musical of all time, being parodied, pastiched, and performed for decades. But, compared to the other things we've talked about so far in the show, it feels a bit like small fry. Phantom is going to get a 6 out of 10 on my popometer. Time for my final verdict. Which of our three big stories is our most relevant and influential pop culture moment? 
I think for me, it has to be the launch of the Macintosh this week. Because the Mac really has changed the world and the way many people use computers. So, the launch of the Mac goes alongside last week's winner, the birth of the video game industry, in our Hall of Fame. And that's it! That is the history of pop culture for the week beginning the 22nd of January. We're still pretty new and figuring things out, so I'd love to know what you liked, what you didn't, and anything you think we might have missed or we should be talking about in future editions. Please feel free to send through any comments you have straight to me using the email chesney at tleproductions.co.uk. That's T-L-E, T for totally, L for ludicrous, E for example. Chesney at tleproductions.co.uk or through my Instagram, chesneyfm. Today's show was researched, written, produced and presented by me, Chesney Forksporter. This is a TLE production. Have a lovely week and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>